The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in June 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we are joined by the Tony-nominated Mary Louise Wilson. Hi, Mary Louise. Hello. Uh, let me just, uh, for our radio audience, kind of review a little bit of your dossier, your, your biography. 17 mm-hmm. different Broadway shows that I count, starting with Hotspot back in 1963, followed yeah. by Flora the Red Menace, in which you played Comrade Ada. Uh, highlights include Gypsy, where you were Tessie Tour, but also you were the standby for Mama Rose. Uh, that was in the mid-'70s. The Philadelphia Story, uh, Cabaret, playing Fraulein Schneider, and currently Grey Gardens. And a year ago at this time, off-Broadway, in Grey Gardens, for which you received a Drama Desk nomination. Other off-Broadway shows, many of them include The Beard of Avon, a Drama Desk nomination for that, uh, Bosoms and Neglect, nominated for that, and winning the Drama Desk Award for Outstanding One-Person Show in 1996 for Full Gallop. And that's just scratching the surface. <laughs> so, well, you make it sound wonderful. <laughs> what it is. It is. And your acting is wonderful. And a year ago at this time, mm-hmm. you were performing... Uh, off Broadway in Grey Gardens, it has since transferred to Broadway. Now here you are, a year later, nominated for a Tony Award. That's pretty heady feeling, I guess. It, it's it's it yeah. It, it it there's a there's a sense of having really done something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you do something eight times a week, which is outstanding. It, it's it's a story about uh, Jackie Kennedy's uh, favorite uh, relatives. <laughs> I'm saying that facetiously. Yeah. And you play uh, Edith Bouvier Beale, the mother. Mm-hmm. And the second act is really where you shine in that. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a well-constructed show. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about the show and about how you interpret the character. Well, um, we... Um both of us, Christine and I, both uh, took our cue from the the documentary and these these real women and watching them and uh, trying to absorb their characteristics, their physical characteristics, and um, understand what maybe is going on underneath. Um, and that's that's a process that has taken place as we've been performing, uh, getting deeper and deeper. You know, with the uh, the emotions of these women. Well, yeah. the, the the show, Grey Gardens, is in two acts. The first yes. act is set in 1941 when the, the Bouviers, the Beals, had a lot of money. They were creme de la creme of society. They yeah. went to all the society functions. They were very much wealthy people. Mm-hmm. And then, was it, 32 years later in 1973, they'd yes. fallen on really bad times. Yeah. The mansion they lived in has really deteriorated. They're living with, with rats and living with garbage-strewn interior mm-hmm. and all that. Well, I know a lot of people can't understand how this could happen, but, you know, I grew up in the South, and I, I there are people who, they're helpless when the money disappears, you know, and um, many people have magazines stacked up their walls. I mean, you know, people can, this can happen to a lot of people, and um, I think these women were just not helped uh, by their family, but they needed to stay in that house, you know, they needed to stay together. A very strong need for that. And Christine Ebersole plays in the second act. She plays the daughter, Little yes. Edie, to your mother, yeah. Big Edie, so right. to speak. Right. So um, I don't know if this is what you want to know. I, I'm not in the first act. I, Mary Louise, I play right. yeah, Christine as an older woman. At, at yeah. the very beginning, you just appear at the very beginning. Then really, well, yeah. the second act is really where, where yeah. your character appears. The appearance in the beginning is really sort of to frame the first act and help the audience uh, follow the story, mm-hmm. you know. 
Were you involved from the very beginning of this project? We know that we've spoken already of Off-Broadway, and there were workshops previously. Had you been part of that process yeah, as well? Yeah, yeah, right from the beginning. Um, I, uh, Scott Frankel, the composer, this was really his his idea initially, and uh, he wanted me to play the part, and I couldn't, I couldn't understand this at all. I mean, I'd seen the documentary, and I thought, I... Well, play this old woman, you know. <laughs> and uh, he he was right. I mean, this uh, this role was made for me, and I was made for the role. So it's one of those felicitous things that happens, you know. I didn't know Scott; he just seen my work. And and you say it was made for you. How much has did the role change? First, let me ask: in the writing from the workshops to ultimately the Broadway incarnation? Well, of course, they worked a great deal in the first act because that's not from the film. Uh, but the second act it really sort of came together very quickly with help, uh, I mean, from Christine and myself. You know, we, we had some ideas. It was somewhat collaborative. But, of course, the, the genius of Doug Wright is the way he took different parts of the movie and fit them together um, in a in an honest a way that has integrity in terms of the emotions and the, the the fights and the the stuff that went on between the two women. We so often talk with people at the beginning of runs of shows. Mm-hmm. You have lived with this material now for quite some time, and again, we hear people say, "Oh, if you saw it, you know, right when we opened, we weren't even we weren't even there yet." From your perspective now, after the run on Broadway since the fall, the run off Broadway last year, how do you feel your performance has changed? And and would people do you think people would see something different than if they'd seen it? Certainly, when you from when you started at Playwrights Horizons. Well, I have been told by friends uh, that it's much deeper, and uh, that's not something I consciously you know do, but it, it's something that happens if you're. When you're acting, you know, things, um, well, if there is the material there to do it, you, 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 and there's plenty of material there, n- unlike a lot of musicals, and, you know, there's a lot of depth to these characters, you, you just naturally, it, it gets deeper. It also is more uh, difficult because of that, too. It, it, it's it's uh, emotionally draining, in a way. Well, the show ran last spring at Playwrights Horizons, mm-hmm. and then it closed, and it, you had basically the summer off to kind mm-hmm. of retool. There were some new songs added, some were dropped. Yeah. Did did you consciously make changes to your performance for Broadway, no. make it any di- different? No. Pretty much the same? Yeah. Yeah. So except for the different songs and maybe a little bit of reworking of the book, is it pretty much still the same show that it, that it was? I think so. I think uh-huh. it's better. Uh-huh. It's, uh, it's better constructed. You know, it's been improved that way. But I, essentially, little touched my character. You know, I was left pretty much the same. Well, the second act, I think, as I recall, is pretty much the same. It's yeah. the first act where the changes were made. Isn't right. It? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you get to sit backstage and read a book. Well, <laughs> yeah, <whatever>. sort of. <laughs> well, what, what, well, you appeared with Christine Ebersole at the very beginning. Yes. And then uh, you basically don't come back until after intermission. That's right. What do you do? Well, it's first very hard sometimes not to get de-energized. But sure. First of all, I have uh, music in the dressing room, and sometimes uh-huh. I dance. <laughs> mm. But other times, I play cards with uh, my friend, who my dresser, who's a friend, and we play gin rummy <laughs> <laughs> and boggle, uh-huh. and uh, that's it. Uh, hmm. 
Because it's, it's something, like you say, you get energized at the beginning because mm-hmm. you walk out at 8.05 or whatever right. and start to perform. So do you have to then re, restart yourself? It's the yourself? hardest part of this sh- for me. The hardest mm-hmm. part is, is getting revved up for the second act. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I always think, oh, my God, here, I, how am I, oh, God. And then finally, you know, once I'm in the rocking chair, <laughs> it, it's sort of the machine moves. And when the know? curtain goes up, yeah. there, there you are. Yeah. Yeah. You commented earlier about, you know, play, that the the second act is certainly drawn from the film more clearly, and, and you have a character there that you could watch and, and model yourself on. How much do you think you're still playing the woman on film, and how much now has it become simply the character you've you've developed? You know, I really don't know. Yeah. I can't. I don't know what I'm doing, and I know that sounds, you know, consciously, it's it's such a not non-mental process, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I but I have people tell me still that they've just seen the film, and they can't believe it. Just seems so accurate. Well, let's ask a different question then. Um, there's been a lot in uh, some of the press accounts about the fact that the young man. Jerry, Jerry, who is figures so strongly in the second act, and is sort of a caretaker um, for you, um, is a real guy. Oh, He's yeah. driving a cab now mm-hmm. in New York, and he, at least early on, was turning up around playwrights. Oh, yeah, and he stays in touch. So, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering, has that relationship maintained? Does he still come in to see the show? I, I don't know if he's come in to see it that much, but he, he recently had a, some broken ankle or something like that, and uh, we found out about it and sent him a card. But, you know, he really adored Big Edie, and I love hearing that, you know. that You know, it's one of those things that happens with old ladies and young men. Hmm. It, it, it happens sometimes. They, they take on a caretaking kind of thing. Maybe they love their grandmothers or something. Well, tell us more about Big Edie, about your character. You you know her from the documentary because you've mm-hmm. seen the real person. Mm-hmm. You've talked to Jerry. You've talked to others. You've read. What what kind of a person was she, and what about little Edie? Well, I, I think that she probably wasn't the greatest mother in the world because she wanted to be a performer, and, and she was a performer as much as she could be. In those days, uh, someone in her social world could not go into the professional theater, but she was completely... Uh, professional about her singing and was always singing and I think that the children came second you know and they had nannies and things like that but Edie I think that she kind of grabbed on to um, and to make her uh, a part of herself in a way you know and um, I know she took her out of school at one point when when she was just nine or ten and and took her to Europe and um, so she was you could say it depends on how people see her. She could say that she was selfish, that she was narcissistic, that uh, she was. But on the other hand, she was, um, I think, a rather delightful person. You know, <laughs> very charming, and um, and that she did she did love Edie, and she was capable of love. You know, um, and I think that she's in denial about her surroundings. There's something. To, I like about that. It's like, oh well, you know, there's cats and cat poo and things. But I don't see it. It's fine. Everything's fine. You know, um, a kind of grand lady thing about her. Um, it's a kind of obtuseness that that's uh, appealing to me. Uh, she's never down. She's never. I think she does have dark feelings, but she's always fighting that. 
I don't know if I'm helping you with this. But. <laughs> well, what was the relationship like between Big Edie and the daughter Little Edie? Certainly in well, the, they had disagreements on one major point, and that was, did Edie come home to help her mother? But that, from Edie's, Little Edie's point, she her life was ruined because she had to come home and take care of her mother. From Big Edie's point, was Edie was falling, Little Edie was falling apart and had to come home. And um, I believe that. <laughs> and maybe Christine believes the other, but I believe that she uh-huh. really needed, that she couldn't handle herself in the in the big city you know she was i was i was actually sending her boxes of groceries and when she was living in uh, the barbizon hotel mm. from east hampton so you know now howard mentioned jerry who's a character yeah. in the second act who mm-hmm. was he was a newspaper delivery boy and then he became more like a, a friend and a caretaker well, you know, this was in the 70s was and he was a hippie uh-huh. you know and uh i think he probably always was a little high on dope and you know that that thing of not really just lying around and and listening to music, you know, and uh, he came and he just did errands for them, but he actually did do a lot for them when they were, when Big Edie got really ill and they wanted to take her to the hospital, he wouldn't let them, she asked him, she told him she didn't want to leave the house and he wouldn't let them take her. So, um, he, he was just uh, always around, hanging around and, you know, Lying down on the bed next to her, or not? I mean, in the twin bed, not right, right, next right, to her. Right. Eating her corn or running errands for her and whatnot, you know. And there was, a, there was I guess, a great deal of affection between them. Oh there? yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as, as friends, was like yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, she had two sons, and they were gone. And now, from Grey Gardens, let's jump back to early in your career, mm-hmm. and we are now some 44 years after your Broadway debut in a show, I guess it's not one that people are listening to a lot of the cast recording of The Hot Spot. Tell mm-hmm. us about The Hot Spot. Music by Mary Rogers, lyrics by Martin Charnin, book by Jack Weinstock and Willie Gilbert, who did How to Succeed in Business. Mm-hmm. What was what was this well, relatively short-running show? <laughs> well, this was with Judy Holliday, who was uh, an amazing performer, and um, it was uh, it was a ill-starred from the start um, because uh, Holliday essentially did not like the writers, and they they had a built-in contract. So uh, we were out of town for uh, a lot of time, where. Um, we would be t- the cast. I was in it playing her her best friend, and uh, we would be out of town. And they would say, uh, "Cast, please wait on the stage for an announcement." And then they would come in and say, "The director has quit, and we have a new director coming in." How We'd often all did that applaud. happen? It <laughs> happened like eight times. I mean, every wow. single. <laughs> and so then, but what what happened? The director would come in and. They applaud. We applaud him, and he'd say, "We're going to go to work." And then he would go and have a meeting with Judy. And the next day, he was gone, and we we would just be called in and do the same old Roomba number again. And uh, it it was a big joke uh, with the cast. We said this this show is like a like an ugly baby. They keep trying to put frilly bonnets on, you know. And Cy Fewer came in. He made a few cuts, and then he was gone. So we call it the Cy Fewer memorial cuts and and then one day uh, Arthur Lawrence came in and he said now he came to see the cast after the show and he said now I just been skiing in Switzerland and we all know that when you ski you have a chance of falling on your ass and breaking your leg but that, that's not going to happen with this show big hand big hand Arthur's gone the next day there's a notice up saying he fell on his ass and broke his leg to management <laughs> 
That's great. And uh, I think poor Judy Holiday really suffered the most because uh, she just was not getting what she needed. And um, so when we got to opening night in New York, none of us had ever heard the overture opening night. We was, what, what, what show is this? You know, she got in her friends to write the overture and the opening number. And I, I can't say this for sure, but we think Stephen Sondheim wrote the overture music and Comden and Green wrote the opening number, but whatever. Judy Holiday, who was, you know, just... Every number had been cut. She had uh, so many things cut that she never met her leading man in the in the whole show. She just went from number to number to number. But opening night, she was just... She went to another level. You know, when we'd have opening night in Boston, and then we'd have opening night in Philly, and then finally in New York, she was unbelievable. And I had one little scene with her, which was cut. But she was so brilliant that she made you funny. You know, her timing. And she mm. was so real, so connected to you, you know. But so it was a famous bomb. But a first Broadway experience... Where where had you come from to that point? Because I, that's not the easiest way to come into a show that troubled and oh and that God. many problems. I, I was shocked, you know. I I, I came from uh, Julius Monk reviews, which at that time were very very uh, hot, and uh, it was really the place to be. And, but small uh, small venues mostly. Well, it was cabaret. Yeah, yeah. I had never done a big show, but. The thing about it was that I couldn't get over was that half the staff didn't speak to the other half. You know, they, they were there were camps. Mm. Mm. And, you know, people get a show and they say, they want me, they want me. And you get in it, you realize not, it isn't they. Some wanted you, some didn't, mm. you know. It's mm. never everybody. So. But here you are in your Broadway debut. Oh, you finally God. made it to Broadway yeah. and you have a show that goes to eight directors and God knows how many other different changes. Yeah. What was going on in your mind? Are you thinking my Broadway career is over before it starts? Or what were you thinking? I was just appalled that, that first of all, that a star like Judy Holiday wasn't better protected. Um, she got terrible hate mail and, uh, you know, I, I just couldn't understand it. It was just... Uh, you know, later with Flora the Red Menace, it was so different because George Abbott is such a, you know, he was so great. And this just didn't have a leader. Mm. And um, I didn't think in terms of like my Broadway career, you know, I just was like, I didn't know what was happening to me. You know, I was just very young and foolish. And uh, everything that I did in the show, I didn't tell you this, Judy kept getting rid of scenes and they would give them to me. But then opening night, the day before we opened, all those scenes were taken away. They were taken out of the show? or Out of way from me. They just taken away? They, given, well, they were uh, taken out of the show, yeah. Or, or given back to her? No, no not no, given just back. Taken out. Just taken out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that brings us then to Flora the Red Menace. You said totally yes. different experience. It was two years later, 1965, yeah. that starred Liza Minnelli. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that experience. More positive, I hope. It was terrific, yeah. George Abbott, uh, he got very mad at me because I got married in the middle of the show, and he thought that was the most stupid, ridiculous thing anybody could ever do. <laughs> Just because he was against marriage? He was or? against marriage at the time, uh-huh. yes. He married later. Uh, but he, he gave me a hard time. But then after we opened, he sent me a note saying, you're a grand actress, and I framed it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, a wonderful show. It should. It, I think the only reason it didn't do better is because this was in the 60s, and Liza Minnelli was playing a communist, and that was just, like, not a not a good thing, you know. But it was a charming show, and I, they did a revival of it. And, um, yeah, it was terrific. 
but you've worked you've worked certainly George Abbott was the first of several really extraordinary directors that mm-hmm. you've gotten to work with. What was his style? Well, he he would give you a line read. People said he's giving us line readings. What is that about? But he it was shorthand. He said to me, uh, when you see the cowboy, I, there was that was my romantic thing. But but I was a communist, very stern, and you know didn't. He said, just say howdy, and the audience knew I was in love with him. You know, he, and I got it. You know, it was terrific. He he didn't tell you be in love or be. You know, he would just give you the line reading. Huh. But not certainly coming out of a different era of directing. Yeah. It was not the Method. the process and discussion no, no, no. and everything because, else. It no, was... because he he trusted you that you were a good performer. He just he trusted actors that way. And he never, by the way, ever auditioned you again. If he was going to use you again, you know, he just called you up, you know. And uh, he had a sense of timing and a sense of rhythm of how and a, and a musical is shorthand. Normally, it's I, I actually that's not true of Grey Gardens, but usually a musical is is shorthand. Hmm. So was this your first experience with George Abbott? Oh yes. So you had to audition for him. Oh yeah. What was that like? Well, he he first of all he called me Mary Louise of May Alcott. He couldn't stand double names, and uh, <laughs> he blew a whistle, which scared the hell out of me. He was seventy eight, by the way, when when I did this, you know. But with, kept going for oh, decades yeah, after too. It's yeah. not like you caught him. In what would it be every, anyone else's twilight years. Right. No, no. And he used to take out uh, my roommate, Skipper Damon, dancing every night after the show. They'd go to Roseland and dance and dance and dance. Poor woman. <laughs> <laughs> but he was terrific. You know, he really was. So what was the audition like? I don't really remember it. Uh-huh. I usually I'm, I'm so overwhelmed at audition singing, I shout instead of singing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you recall what you sang? No. Yeah. I'm sorry. I can't remember. <laughs> well, in the show, it's music of Candor and Ebb for yeah. The Red Menace. It yeah. was essentially written as a vehicle for Liza Minnelli. Yeah. And uh, it had a short run. As you say, the theme may not in the Cold War era have been the most popular. Right. Abbott it, actually apologized to us. But you played yeah. Comrade Ada. Yes. What was Comrade Ada all about? Oh, devoted to the party. Uh-huh. This was all about the communists in New York City around the in the 20s, you know, the 20s and 30s. And very serious about, you know, activities to do with uh, protesting, you know, workers, workers uniting. Coming out of the Julius Monk reviews and certainly your first couple of shows on Broadway being musicals, we should point out that you have done as many plays as you have musicals Mm -hmm. over your career. Was it a case of you had to make a shift out of musicals or had you been had the opportunity to do both all along? No, it was hard. Um, You know, if you're. I started off just being a comedian in cabaret. And so then if you're a comedian and you want to work on Broadway, you have to sing and dance. That's how I learned to sing. You know, it just ipso facto, you'd have to do that. And I wanted to do plays. And um, I remember begging uh, this guy to let me do... I did a play at Lincoln Center. I think it was my first one. Another, It wasn't Another Evening with Merlin Finch. I can't remember the name of it. Damn. Anyway, it was with Phil Bosco, who was playing a woman. In, and there's nothing funnier than seeing Phil Bosco in a pair of woman's hose with a, <laughs> a hair on his legs. Was this the old repertory company uh, at Lincoln Center? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this wasn't part of it. It was done in the smaller theater. Uh-huh. Uh, Phil was also doing Shakespeare upstairs. I remember that. Uh, on off nights, whatever. But um, 
that was my first experience, and I remember the review was something like uh, the distaff side was rather raucous. That was the review. But um, one of my best experiences was with Ellis Rabb. I hope we're going to talk about the royal family with uh, such an amazing cast. Well, um, another one of the great directors that I alluded was, to. Uh, Tell yeah. people, he, you know, it's sad because Ellis's name is not one that's heard often. No. We've heard Jack O'Brien invoked it yeah, a couple of Jack years ago Ellis at the Tony Awards. Yeah. But, but tell us about Ellis Rabb. He was a very theatrical man. He 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 was, uh, you know, the first thing he would talk about if if you were going to sit down and do a play was the wigs, and the music, and you'd think, oh Lord, you know. Hmm. But he would discover with you what was his great gift was casting. Uh, now here he had the royal family, which had been more or less assigned to him because they were doing a series of American plays at uh, the uh, theater in Washington. Oh, you know, the big theater. I can't remember the name. You know, the big Kennedy Center. And so he was assigned this play, Royal Family. So here we have Eva Ligallian, Rosemary Harris, Sam Levine, Joe, Joe Mahar. I mean, it's just extraordinary. George Grizzard. George Grizzard. It was an amazing cast. And we're, we're starting rehearsal and rehearsing. And he said to us the first day, I'm not sure what this play is about. There's a lot of texture. So <laughs> we're performing, we're doing it and doing it. And he said... I've just realized what this play is about. Everybody gets work. And the play is about actors. It's all about actors coming and going, answering the phone, uh, eating gingerbread, yakking about plays. But, you know, that thing about actors is, I got a job. I mean, that is the ultimate. You can be getting married. You could be dying. But, it, you know, you're saying, I got work, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was a tremendous insight. Uh, and he had a way of, of doing that with you. you, you know. So you, my part was pretty small, but I was. You were informed of how you fit into the whole picture. You know, he was brilliant at that. Well, you played Kitty Dean, was she? Yes. And who was she? She had married into the family, uh-huh. and the family looked down on her and thought she was rather coarse. But I didn't think I was. I thought I was just as good an actress as any of these Cavendishes. That was the family. <laughs> and uh, of course, we, my husband and I, had no money, and we were always sort of coming over for breakfast, cadging an egg, and uh, hanging out in the house. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> One of the more interesting notes, as you look over your career, is the fact that you have appeared not once but twice on Broadway in productions of The Women yeah. over a span of don't some ask me why <laughs> thirty years. Well. Well, what I'm curious about with the women, which which seems to crop up only every so often, mm. is the experience of doing it in 1973, the reaction of audiences and the way in which this cast of women would relate to that story has to have been very different than when you looked at when it was looked at again just a few years ago. Yeah. Do you recall? Can you tell us about the different approaches? Well, I think that the director, Scott Elliott, had a very different idea. In uh, new production. Yeah, and I didn't ever quite get it, to tell hmm. you the truth. But I was playing the mother, and he had said uh, that the f- film wasn't good, which I'm sorry, but it's a brilliant film. And not to watch the film. Well, I knew that film really well, and I, I m- modeled my part on that wonderful actress who played the mother. Hmm. <laughs> But but back in 73, doing that play at, in the rise of the feminist movement. It was a, it was a, 
a star vehicle. You know, Myrna Loy, Alexis Smith, uh, Kim Hunter. So was, no politics. It no. was just a straight ahead. Yeah. Hmm. Gown. It was a show about gowns. And I, I think this one was, too. The latest one was more about hats and gowns than anything else. Hmm. Well, you're certainly familiar with it, having been in it in 1973. Yes. Yeah. So, um, but you were playing a very different character. Right. Because it was almost 30 years later. The best part in the show is, is the writer, Nancy, which I played in 1973. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. she sort of comments on everything. Huh. And of course, we've we've suddenly spanned thirty years in your career talking about the women. But as John mentioned in introducing you, uh, nineteen seventy four uh, revival of Gypsy mm-hmm. um, as uh, one of the strippers. Tessie, <laughs> can you yeah. tell us about that production? Well, it had Angela Lansbury as a star, and I don't think I could ask for anything better. I mean, the woman is uh, superb, but she's also an actor. She she's not uh, she's not a, a star personality. She sees herself as an actor, and we toured. First of all, she's amazing because she did it in London. Then we she came here and we started this production. It went on the road for six months. It was a whole new company yeah. that she done. It was yeah. it was it a fully new production? Yes. So yes, so Arthur just... Lawrence was directing this one. Okay. Then we went on the road with it for six months. Then we played in New York for I can't remember how many months. Quite a few. And then she toured with it in summer stock. Hmm. Um, it was a class A tour. It was a. It was a really. Oh, it's a brilliant show. Uh, to do it is just a, a real pleasure because you could feel Jerome Robbins' ghost and everything. You know the shaping of things and the the lack of uh, fluff. Hmm. You know every every note every word told you know moves the story forward and um it was just it was a great time and i had to go on once that was i've never been that terrified in my life only once yeah so tell us about well, going it was on planned. for angela I it mean, was a performance that she had planned not to do for did some, the audience know that yeah you, they that, were not yeah that her? was kind of neat because the audience it was a matinee and it was filled with actors and some actors i hadn't seen in years because this was in la <clears throat> but I, I had three weeks to become almost rigor mortis set in. I was so terrified. And I, when I came out for the... All I could remember of anything was some people. That was it. That's all I could remember. And the conductor had a huge face, thank God. And I, all I, and I had a tunnel vision. And just I couldn't see. Just through this tunnel, I saw his face mouthing the words. So I got through the first number, and the tunnel opened up a little bit. And it went like that through the whole show. Then there was an electronic runway that went out. And, you know, Angela's big, taller woman. And she would just run across that thing. I, I was like, I felt like a peanut running on this electronic runway over the orchestra. And, by the way, the mother of, of little, uh, of little uh, oh, when she's a baby, what's her name? Baby, baby June, June said, oh, you want to watch that, you know, you, you could fall. She, she's just, oh, that's helpful. Yeah, so, uh, life she, imitating art, whatever. Um <laughs> But the audience knew, you know, they knew because they were actors, a lot of them, you know, that this was uh, harrowing, you know. So it was terrific when I got to the last thing, you know, for me, for me, you know. It was mm-hmm. fabulous. It was great. But just that one time, it. you got through it and it knew enough. that unless Angela was <laughs> was sick, you yeah. you weren't going to get to do it again. Right, but that, that was okay. But for those three weeks leading up when you knew you oh had to go God. on, it would have been better had she just called in sick Probably. that day and you had to go on Probably. rather than having yeah. time to think about it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, did you then, because you were you were in the show, did you then kind of like study her performance? Well, right? I had been all along. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. You, you were in the show, so you were yeah. seeing her every, yes. every, every yeah. day. Yeah. Were you then, in your mind, saying, I have to copy this, I have to change this? What, what were you thinking? Or were you just trying to memorize the lines? I think just trying to memorize the uh-huh. lines. I mean, the part is, is written in a way that there's only one way to play it, uh-huh. you know? Um well, how, how about Tessie Turner, the stripper? Wonderful part. Oh, my God. <laughs> wonderful part. Really. How, 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 how did you feel about playing that kind of a role? Was it just another role to play? Did you well, have, no, I loved it because uh, no one knew I had a figure. Oh. <laughs> uh, and my legs, and I was out there, you know. Uh, it was pretty great because right. I, I wasn't uh, in my 20s. It was very nice when Arthur said, Mary Louise, you have legs. <laughs> then he he would keep me after rehearsal every night, you know, to get me to do it. He wanted me to play her very prissy lady. And uh, at first I really fought it, you know. But um, I did it. In the end, it worked pretty well. That she was very grand. <laughs> so. Coming back to my allusion to the great directors you worked with, you, in passing, in talking about the royal family, mentioned Eva Le Gallienne, mm-hmm. and you even had the opportunity to be directed by Eva Le Gallienne mm-hmm. in what reportedly was not an entirely successful experience. Yeah, but but Eva Le Gallienne is one of the great figures oh. of the early, you know, the American stage yeah. from from the early part of the the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. What? Can you just tell us about working with her? Oh, I can a, tell you a, a figure couple of, stories of that, such, you know, yeah. such legendary. Well, we importance. became very good friends. But uh, one of my fa- two favorite stories is off. We were off stage uh, at a certain point when Sam Levine had a long, uh, wonderful monologue so this with is now Rosemary in the Royal Harris. Family. Yeah, in the royal family, and um, Joe Mahar, who played my husband, who's passed away, who was just a brilliant actor. We, Joe and I, and Eva Legallion were off stage, and she said, uh, "Mary Louise." Come here. And I walked over and she said, This should be cut. <laughs> Meaning Sam's speech. And of course, yeah. you'd be cutting George S. Coffin and Edna Ferber, well, not people who are hanging around right. working on the script. Right. And then another time she said, Betty Louise. And I came home and she said, I was awful tonight. I was like Helen Hayes. And I, mm-hmm. I laughed and I walked away and she said, Come back. She's not a friend of yours, is she? <laughs> <laughs> but, but tell us we about the We also called the theater, it was the Helen Hayes Theater, but to, in her honor, we called it the Fulton. <laughs> that, it was the Fulton when, when Eva Legallion was a young woman uh-huh. and played the, the swan there. Huh. So. But tell us about the Alice in Wonderland, because, you know, it's... Well, it was a debacle, you know. Um, <clears throat> Again, a de- with great people. Wonderful! Kate Burton, oh my Mary God! Stuart yeah, Masterson, it was Kate's first uh, Legallian directing and and in it uh, Edward Hibbert. I mean, yeah. you know, you you look at it and go, "Gosh, this sounds like a treat." Yeah. Uh, I just don't. It was. I don't know why it failed, but it failed in a big way. We were all in hampered, very hampered by our costumes. It was like the costumes were wearing us. You know, it was. It, um, and uh, the only really successful thing in it, I think, was Eva Legallion when she they flew her. She was now in her eighties, I think, and uh, she was uh, the White Queen. And they, she was in a harness and she flew. And and, and I remember seeing it in a tech rehearsal from out front. It was just jaw dropping. It was so magical. Mm-hmm. So it's like the only thing that lit. This was her twenties production being brought forth uh, forward 
in every detail, and it just didn't, some of it needed to be changed. And so there was a big argument between the producers and Legallion, and in the end she was treated very, very badly. Hmm. So I, it was not a pleasant experience. That's too bad. But I play the Red Queen, and I had a hula hoop in my skirt, and I'm sure they were sorry about that later because I got a lot of motion out of it. <laughs> <laughs> a little tessitura was yeah. left in the, uh, in the Red Queen. <laughs> we had My face was red. I had a red rubber nose. We all had to have uh, our faces plastered, in, you know, plasticine. It was a nightmare. That was horrible with straws in our nose and... God. You know, an actor doesn't really want to wear a rubber mask. And that was the idea, but, you know, mm-hmm. crazy. We've been talking mostly about Broadway work. Let's talk about a little bit of your off-Broadway work. Oh, yeah. I mentioned a little while ago you did win the Drama Desk Award about yeah. a decade ago in 1996 yeah. for the outstanding one-person show, Full Gallop, in which you portrayed Diana Vreeland. Yeah, I wouldn't want to overlook that because that was the greatest experience of my life. And we should say you... Wrote it. I wrote it with. I co-wrote it with my partner Mark Hampton, and um, uh, it took us quite a few years. We were always doing other jobs, and so was he. But we, and it took us a long time to get anybody interested in doing it. And by that point, I knew everybody. I knew all the directors, and they'd say, "Well, we'll give it to the dramaturg," you know, and it would go under the pile of papers. And uh, so, it, and then there was a process of reading at ladies' clubs and uh, strange little theater places up in Woodstock. And, you know, at one point we we were even talking about going on a river barge. (laughs) (laughs) But where did the impulse to write come from? Uh, Well, you you only have to have experienced Diana Vreeland uh, to see her, which I had in uh, film, and read her. And she's everything I ever wanted to be. She was glamorous and funny. Very funny, both intentionally and unintentionally. And her language was unique. Her syntax, her use of words, which is something I, I really love a lot. So, and she, a great subject because her last thing that she ever did made her the most famous. Her biggest fame was at the end of her life when she was uh, uh, working at the Metropolitan Museum and putting on these un- unbelievable costume shows, which were huge events in the city. And. Um, I started working on her because we thought she was so funny, but then I became quite, um, I found her quite poignant and uh, something quite uh, deep about her, profound. So was it your idea to write the show? Both we, Mark and I were fascinated uh-huh. by her. Uh-huh. And you said to each other, let's write a show Well, I tell it? you, I was playing the first witch in a production of Macbeth, uh-huh. and the guy, the director said, I'm going to give your chestnut speech to the younger, prettier witch. And I thought, well, the hell with this. <laughs> I went to the phone and found out about And she just died, and I thought, if I don't do something about this, someone else will. And we did have some challenges. You know, there was a guy <clears throat> who did her off-Broadway, down in somewhere, you know, off-off-Broadway. Hmm. But uh, it was a, it was a terrific experience, and uh, I'm very proud of it. Very proud of the writing, and my only regret it was that it was never filmed. It was filmed by Lincoln Center, but um, we still have some people interested in filming it. Maybe 
You talked about playing the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland. You mm-hmm. played Queen Elizabeth off yeah. Broadway in the yeah. beard, the beard of a, Avon. I make a specialty of Queen parts. <laughs> you, yes. you, you play queens a lot, yes, yes. So to speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were in full. Uh, uh, was it seventeenth century? It was uh, a, a queen, the original, the original Elizabeth. Yes, yeah, yeah Elizabeth one. Full, full regalia. It was a great. I think this play, Amy Friedman, is just a, a, an amazing play. I don't know if you saw it, but <clears throat> it was hilarious and profound about Shakespeare. And how he came to write the plays. And was it really Shakespeare who wrote all those plays? Well, or? there's still an argument there. But yeah. um, it was a brilliant cast and wonderfully directed by Doug Hughes. And you played partly from the from the audience. You were shouting questions out to people. Well, we were, was, was we that? were in a box watching uh-huh. our... I was watching my play. The, everybody wrote plays. The Queen, everybody. So. Why do you think we are seeing so constantly portrayals of Queen Elizabeth in movies, <laughs> on stage. I mean, there could be a club now of all of the is. actresses who've played. And indeed, you know, right now on Broadway, you've got her in the Pirate Queen. I and know. I don't know what this is. It's, it's like a rash. I don't know. All these queens. I don't know. And then there was a, a, a prime suspect. She, Helen Mirren, yeah, of course. Yeah, she had just done the Queen on the, and then Dame Jew. You know, it's like everybody's doing queens. I don't know what it's about. Huh. It's but, it's just it's fascinating <clears throat> that she is a figure that seems to yeah. be so constantly portrayed both in a his, true historical sense right. and, and in the in, Beard of Avon, yeah. which is a comedy and yeah. and playing around with with a lot of of fictional elements as mm-hmm. well. There she is again. Yeah. But uh, don't know what that is. <laughs> don't know what it is. <laughs> well, let's jump back now to Broadway and the Roundabout Theatre Company revival of Cabaret, mm-hmm. which was such a revelation for, for so many people now almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Can you tell us about that, going into that work? Of course, as we spoke, you'd done Candor and Ebb mm-hmm. early in your career, but going in and reinventing Cabaret, looking at Cabaret in a new way. Yeah. Um, tell us about that well, process. it was really Sam Mendes, uh, the director. Uh, his he really was in complete command of how this show is going to be done, and down to the every single moment. And that's a wonderful thing because mm-hmm. uh, his the concept was all his. And um, he'd done a it, production in England about yeah, a few years it, earlier. Yeah, and you know that's a great thing when a director gets to do a, a production. More than once, you know, because they it grows. You know, I, I've seen this before in other cases. But, you know, he would tell you exactly the beat to enter and and exactly, you know, when when to speak. I mean, it all fit in. It fit in with the music. Uh, it was you just felt very much uh, that you were you were you knew what you were doing because he told you what to do. You know, but and certainly the show it was, was much dirtier, down and dirtier than the first one. Well, yeah. exactly. The show was stripped yeah. of of a lot of its its Broadway veneer. Yeah, in I that saw production. it in the, earlier with Fred. Fred Ebb and I went to see it at a preview, and uh, I thought it was too cute. Hmm. The uh, I didn't original. tell him that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but. In terms, in the early days of that run, I'm very curious, uh, having seen actually a preview myself, um, was the audience surprised by what they were seeing? Did people come in expecting the old cabaret and get turned around? Uh, That was not the experience at all. I don't know Hmm. how this show, how the word spread, but 
the people in the audience were wearing hats and dark lipstick. It was like they they came in costume. They were coming to, to Rocky Horror. They, <laughs> well, but like a cabaret in Berlin. Hmm. I'm not kidding. This and right from the first. Uh, Celebrities were coming. I don't know. Maybe that's publicity. But, uh, you know, the reviews weren't that great. The Times review wasn't that great. I know. It's hard to believe. But, uh, it, but it didn't matter. But it became one of the most successful shows. It became yeah. one of the most successful shows Roundabout's ever done. It ran yeah. almost six years. Yeah. And just kept going. Right. <laughs> of course, you have the tables and you can have a drink, you know, and, and that helps. Well, but, the, the the way the theater was set, the audience yeah. was sitting as though they were at an actual cabaret. Yeah, the, the original theater was fantastic. I don't know if you saw it there, but at the when it was at the Henry Miller yeah, you're referring yeah. to before it moved the, the before longer the run was at Studio crushed. 54, yeah. but but the Henry Miller Theater. Uh-huh. Well, you've played some very interesting roles from communist to queens to uh, <laughs> to a Fräulein Schneider we're just talking about. I haven't you, done a prostitute yet. I don't know. I was right? going to ask you what comes next. Is that the next? <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have goals. You've played the yeah, queen, right. now you want to play uh, a the prostitute. The only thing I really don't care to play is a nun. I I don't know. I I don't know where you go with that, you know. Um, well, there's always doubt. <laughs> there's always doubt. That's true. I don't ever think about what I'll do next because, uh, you know, one never knows. You know, it's always a complete surprise to me. Which do, you, is, do you look for the roles where they find you? No, they find me. They find you. Yeah. Fortunately, well, they, or fortunately, so far, so far it's been okay. <laughs> well, fortunately, they've been finding you a lot oh, over your, nice. your career. And uh, now starring along with Christine Ebersole in Grey Gardens, Tony nomination, mm-hmm. to your credit. Mm-hmm. Mary Louise, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks, Mary Louise. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, Help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.